Please welcome to the stage, Todd Conklin. Howdy, friends. Todd Conklin, the Pre-Accident Investigation uh, Podcast. You're here. You've made it. You've made it to the podcast. It's happened. One more week has gone around the calendar. No, off from next to, you know, you know what I'm going to, you know, where I'm getting with this. I'm so glad you're here and I hope you're excited to be here. That's uh, the perfect combination. I am just now settling back in post bluegrass festival. Oh yes. So big excitement at the bluegrass festival. First of all, there was a band called steel wind that I discovered. I didn't discover. What am I saying? I discovered, I, I happened to hear them, which therefore was a new thing for me. I heard them on stage five in Winfield, which is a killer place to play. And they're great. And they do a song called F5. She's an F5, like an F5 tornado. Well worth Googling. In fact, I think I'm going to play a clip of it um, on an upcoming podcast. I kind of have that in my brain to do. So you'll get to hear it. That's nonetheless. The big excitement was that the golf cart company changed. So, you know, I rent a golf cart. It's my most exciting thing of the year is I rent a golf cart for the weekend and drive around the campgrounds. And it's not just me. I mean, there's tons of people. Uh, but the, the company that was handling it changed, and a new company came in, and I didn't get a reservation. Oh, no. I mean, this could be terrible because they go really fast. Fortunately, my friends came to the rescue and got me a reservation at the last minute, and I got the very last golf cart. In fact, my golf cart was so last golf cart that it wasn't even certified to use at night. So to use a golf cart at night, at least at Winfield, it has to have uh, lights on the front and lights on the back. And this golf cart did not have those. So there we were. And the campground, driving around the campground, listening to music, pretty much, I mean, you can do it all the time, but the nighttime is kind of the most fun. I mean, that's when, when you want to do it, right? So they got the golf cart, and then we went into improvisational mode, adaption. We entered work as done, not work as imagined. And uh, I stopped and bought bicycle lights that have pretty cool lights too. Um, uh, they have kind of a rubber clip on them. And I was able to clip the two, I got two sets. So I, I clipped the two headlights on either of the uprights that hold the, the roof on the golf cart. Is this, does this even matter? I can't believe the detail I'm going at. Can you tell how into this I am? And the back two lights I clipped to the thing that holds the golf bags. That worked great. I made it through the most aggressive, uh, golf cart police person and she was quite in fact in fact we didn't make it the night before with a flashlight taped to the roof that did not cut it but the new system at night looked really like it was factory direct i mean it was pretty it was pretty amazing so it ended up being really fun we had a great time um cannot tell you how much fun that festival is if you're in the music festivals at all um they're all great i mean there's not really bad ones but this one's so interesting because there are so many stages that everybody kind of is always rotating around and you can sort of shop, uh, pick and choose, sort of shop which bands you want to hear. And then the the bands just roll out to the campground where they also have these professional sound, professional lighting stages. I mean, there's also picking around the campfire. Mostly what I notice people do is pick guitar either around porta-potties, which strikes me as an odd place to play guitar. Well, maybe it's a good place. I mean, there's always gas. Oh, hello, thanks, I'm here all day. And light poles. But it's really fun. We had a great time. Uh, a good time was had by all. 
which is what I'm coming off of. So now I'm back in it. No golf cart for me. You know, I'm in a golf cart free environment now. Uh, I did save the lights though for next year. So I think ha- have the, if this problem comes up again, we're so ready for this problem. That is exciting and fun too. So that's really fun. So the podcast today is our buddy Matt Comfer. And if you don't know Matt, Matt's from Qantas Services, uh, which is uh, a, just uh, a giant service company that helps the energy industry. If you don't know about them, you ought, you ought to look them up. They're the biggest company you never heard of. And I think that's kind of, in a way, maybe by design. They don't really have um, they don't they don't create a, a user consumable experience for everyone. They're very finite in who they help, and they help with with pipelines and and linemen and cell phones and all that kind of stuff. So they provide services. They're in a really really big transition, and it's been a pretty interesting journey to watch because there's definitely been some ups and there's been some downs. The crazy thing about running safety is that the potential for failure to happen is always there. And catastrophic failure, catastrophic failure is really difficult because it doesn't give a lot of indicators it's going to happen. And it's oftentimes uh, happens in the midst of quite normal operations. And so that's always been our challenge, and that's been the challenge that that Matt and Sage and Peter and all the guys at Quanta are dealing with. But Matt was good enough to actually agree to uh, put in a podcast. And so that's what we're going to talk about, sort of Matt's journey, really, really not Matt's journey. That would, he would be really angry I said that. The journey that all the entire organization from the top all the way throughout the organization are taking around how to change safety. And they've really coined this idea of managing capacity, especially for the work they do, because it's, it's, it's uncertain, right? Because we know that's true. That's always true. And because it's high risk and uncertain, what they want to have is the capacity to actually fail as elegantly as they possibly can. Or as our buddy David Woods would say, the, the capacity for graceful extensibility. And that's what Matt talks about. And they just rolled out just this year their capacity model, and it was quite a marketing campaign. I mean, they're a big big company, so they, they had to work it pretty hard. And that's what Matt's going to talk about. So without much further ado, I think we should listen to the podcast and, and see how it sounds. I think you're going to find this incredibly interesting. Uh, yeah, incredibly. No, credibly interesting. Well, both. I think both are accurate. So here we go. This is uh, Matt Comfer from Quanta Services, and he's going to talk to you about their journey into the applied use of these new ideas. So let's listen. The journey's been uh, great. Uh, it's been exciting. The capacity model is ready for rollout. Today was the big rollout day, so... So I told everybody this morning, uh, the rocket ship is blasting off today, and we all have a seat on it, so let's go. So walk us through the capacity model. What are you guys thinking, and, and really, why did you make the decisions you guys made? It's pretty interesting to watch this. Well, Todd, it's what we've talked about a lot for the last year, last 18 months. You know, our, our incident rates are low. Uh, for all of our careers, we've chased frequency, the numbers, and they're down as low as they've ever been, and our exposure is higher than it's ever been. We're working more man hours and hurting fewer people. It's really good. We are still having outliers, those life-changing events, and we're going after them. And that's what the capacity model is all about. It's putting capacity into our work and understanding that people are human and they're going to make mistakes and changing our thinking. It's not if a mistake happens. It's when that mistake happens. And understanding and accepting the fact that our employees will make a mistake, but we're going to have capacity for failure. So they walk away. 
is this in lieu of your industrial safety efforts that you've done for a while or, or plus your industrial safety? How's that, how's that fit together? It's plus. We're not going to get away from prevention. We said prevention is a foundation of everything we do. It's got to be there. We're still going to look at it, and we're still going to go after it hard. But this is on top of that. we got to look and learn from the context of events, not just chase frequency. And you're saying something amazing because this idea that your incident rates are as low as they've ever been, but your contact hours are higher than they've ever been before, means you're in a position where you really have less predictive data and way more risk. So I can see the need to probably look at things differently. What's been your, your biggest lesson in, in turning the aircraft carrier and in, in making this change happen? That's a, it's a big question. If I was to give advice, I don't know if this is a lesson, but to get senior management first, at first I think we did this, and I think I promised a podcast a year ago. We were sitting in the same hotel talking about it. Uh, we really had to get senior management to buy in, but before that I had to get bought in. It took me a while. I'm a traditional safety professional. I've been doing this for 18, 20 years, something like that. And it took me a while to evolve. And then I had to sit down with our CEO several times and get took him a while to evolve. And as you saw today, he's very supportive today and where we're going. So I guess a lesson or, you know, just suggestions as you start the journey, start at the top and get buy-in first and then start building the program. Well, let me, let me make a comment on that because I think one of the most interesting things about your CEO is that he's okay with the conflict. He's okay. In fact, he almost encourages people to push back, and he's okay with that conflict, which I actually see is really a positive um, uh, as it relates to creating change. I also think it makes your job not easier. Easier is the wrong word, but it makes it, makes it okay to push back. And if it's okay to push back, that probably is a pretty good increase in learning. How's that been um, from your side of the equation? No, it's awesome. Of course, it raises the stress level when you have a conflict with your boss or your CEO especially. But he's always been that way no matter what the topic is, and he encourages us. Let's get it on the table and talk about it. Conflict makes us better. And you saw on stage today, him and I have ongoing conflict about zero. And what do we say around zero? And him and I are not lined up, but yet the way he describes it, I kind of get, and I, I, I think I'm there. Yeah, if I can summarize, I think what's interesting is he's not going to let go of zero. And I think it's because he morally feels like he can't let go of zero, which right. I get totally. But he's also willing to say, if we don't strive for excellence, we'll never be excellent. And so he sees zero as a goal. I think what's interesting is he's allowed enough space intellectually and operationally for him to also know that zero is not the measure. It's the, it's the moral goal, but it's not the standard, that, that people are imperfect, the systems are imperfect, and that failure is going to happen. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, not to correct you, but what he said was – Oh, God, always correct me. That's not a problem. Yeah, what he's saying is we're going to strive for perfection and get to excellence, right? And you're right. Zero is the number. That's what you want to say. It's never good to hurt anybody. We never want to have that happen. But what he very clearly stated was life-changing events have to stop. Significant events have to stop. We're going to lead the industry, and they're going to stop. How have you shepherded your, your safety people? Because that, that's a really special group that has the most 
vested in the traditional way, the most to lose, really. How have you how have you sort of helped them be successful? Well, you start small like anything, right? So we started with the corporate staff, and as I was going through this journey, we are reading the same books. We are buying the Conklin books, the Decker books. We're having uh, debates in the morning around the water cooler. We're texting each other on the weekends. Did you hear this podcast? What do you think about that point? So we're really getting that team bought in. And then we're slowly taking it out to the broader team at our operating units and talking to them about it and getting them bought in and seeing the ones that are kind of early adapters, adopters and bringing them into the fold and getting them to sell the story. And then we're bringing them into the conference like you've seen here the last couple of days and setting the foundation for where we're going. Are you surprised the Canadian operations have kind of almost taken the lead? Because it's the same thing we saw, for instance, with ConocoPhillips. Is it more culturally a good fit for Canada? I mean, I, I'm curious why, because they've, they've really, they've done some pretty cool stuff for you guys. They have, and, you know, they've always been more progressive around safety management in Canada. You know, I've been working in and around Canada now for probably 10, 12 years, and it seems like they're always a half a step ahead of philosophy or implementation of new ideas or forward thinking. So I'm not really sure what it is, but they're, they do a good job up there. How do you feel about the whole learning component? That that seems really interesting to me at a bunch of levels. Uh, learning teams or what we're calling operational learnings here at Quanta, it's going to be a game changer for us. Now, I think, and I don't know if I've told you this or not, Todd, but the investigation process is broken. Uh, we have to investigate because we want to know the root cause, right? Uh, our clients want an investigation. They want to know root cause. We have to give them a report in 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever the contractual requirement is. You have OSHA getting involved. You have our lawyers, their lawyers. Everybody has a vested interest in this, and everybody's trying to do the right thing for the right purpose, right? We're trying to get better around that investigation. We're trying to protect our company, the client's trying to protect themselves. Yeah, all that's going on, yet yeah, it's inhibiting learning. So we're trying to step aside from that process. Not even it, that process is what it is. Step aside from that process and learn the context around the event. Understand what's driving those decisions, what's driving that event, rather than who's driving it. So what are you doing to do that? Because I'm especially interested in this part. Because I do think our investigations pretty much as a rule kind of stop too soon and they're really limited how are you pushing how are you pushing that difference within those those restrictions so we're letting that process flow we're not getting involved with the process we're not hindering the process that process flows and we step to the side of it after a couple days a week two weeks and we're putting a team together people in the field and bringing them in without management in the room and what we're calling a safe space, and we find out what's really going on and what's driving this. Are you surprised by what you're learning? Absolutely. Every day. We just heard a story today about, you know, we had a barricading issue around trucks, and the learning team is coming up with some ideas that we never dreamed that we would get, and we would never get that out of an investigation. And by the way, the learning team was not a result of an event. It was a result of non-compliance with a rule and we just couldn't figure out why the employees weren't getting it so we stepped back we got seven employees out of the field brought them into a conference room and said we want to figure this out and we need your help and within an hour they opened up and it was amazing how are you sharing those success stories around learning i mean how do you talk about 
How do you talk about safety success? Because I think one of the challenges is traditionally we've we've not done a good job talking about it. We, we're pretty good about talking about accidents, but we're not very good talking about the accidents that didn't happen. Yeah, I wish we were better, and we're still not great. But like this barricading issue, taking that across, we have bucket trucks all around North America, South America, everywhere. And taking that lesson to the field is really, really important. And then communicating that this isn't just some safety person sitting in the, you know, the higher level of the tower or whatever, writing a new rule or a new process. This is coming from field employees just like them, and it's relating. So it's been it's been good, still not as good as we need to be. That challenge, I think, is a is a big one. I mean, I think that's that's a big part of what happens. And you guys are. You're especially you're 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 purposely kind of diffused. I mean, you're you're purposely, and I think that's actually, yeah, decentralized, which is an advantage for you guys, which means that one size safety program probably won't fit all, which is a cha- I mean, I would think that'd be a challenge for you. What are you thinking around that? It's a huge challenge, but yet it also gives us an advantage because we want that local operating unit to own the process. And while we have the capacity model and we have elements of the capacity model that we want implemented, we're giving them flexibility on how it looks at their operating unit. As long as the core of the program stays there, the, the operating unit will have the opportunity to adjust. You know, we're not dictating a certain form or anything like that. We're saying these are elements that you got to get in your process that we believe will eliminate life-changing events. How are you defining capacity in this capacity model? That's that, that word's tricky for some people, I think. It's been tricky for us. Our board of directors asked me, what's capacity really mean? But it's really having capacity for failure. When that failure happens, the person doesn't get hurt. So at the core of us and what we believe is every life-changing, life-ending, life-altering event is a result of a release of energy that we cannot absorb safely, right? So when that event happens, do we have controls in place that protect our employees? And that's how we measure capacity. So when you look at a, a task going on that there's a high energy, whether it's electricity or pneumatic, whatever it might be, do we have multiple layers of controls? And what we're saying is we want two layers of controls between our crews, our employees, and energy. If you get down to one control, we want you to call your supervisor and say, hey, this is a high-risk task, high energy is involved, and only got one control. If we get down to one control and that control is human behavior, we're stepping back and saying, should we be doing this task? Which you could, I mean, that's a really brilliant question. Never be one control away from failure. I, you did something really interesting this morning. So you got a big room full of people. I don't know, four or 500 people is a big room. And you, you started with a safety moment, but you did a safety moment on AEDs. And the, the crux of that was that since you put AEDs in the field, 25 people haven't died. In my opinion, I don't think you could have found a better way to talk about capacity than to kick off that way. Was that purposeful? I mean, you do that on purpose. So t- tell me about that. Well, one, we're extremely proud of the AED program. We have 8,000, over 8,000 AEDs around the globe. Our goal is to have one in every supervisor's truck. Now, we don't hit that, but we're coming really close, and that's what we're trying to get to. And, yeah, it's about capacity and taking care of our people. So we often start with, you know, emergency planning. And we just filmed this video that you saw this morning, and it's really heartfelt two stories from our employees. 
One was on the job. One was an employee's father that got saved by a company AED. And starting that just kind of gets the meeting going, understanding what capacity is all about. I think you said it in your remarks is that's capacity, right, having that AED with us. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So you've rolled it out. Um, what's next for you guys? What, what, what are you thinking now? What, what happens tomorrow? I told my team this morning it took a lot of work to get to where we are today and be proud. But the sun's going to come up tomorrow, and we got a long way to go. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, we have implementation, right? This is kickoff. Uh, there's still a long road. Uh, one of the things that we've done early on, and it's kind of trickled out a little bit. I'll say today we kind of dropped the green flag on the capacity model. Early on, being just a couple months ago, we trickled out sticky. And uh, those have probably heard us talk about sticky or, you know, the stuff that kills you. Um, that's very nice. Stuff is very, very nice. That's a good use. Well, I had to say stuff because sometimes my mom listens to this, and I don't know if you're <laughs> I don't know if your technology actually bleeps no, us out. I, I have no bleeper. And I told mom I couldn't cuss in front of her. So she saw the sticky video for the first time this weekend. What'd she say? What'd she say? That's so funny. She said, I warned her. I was like, mom, I got to tell you, I cuss in this video, but it's bleeped out. She said, well, why did you have to cuss? <laughs> On the other hand, uh, she took it home and showed dad, and I guess dad loved it. So I don't know what that says, but uh, it's pretty cool. We trickled out stickier stuff that kills you and that term has really resonated with the workforce and has taken off and our many of our clients are using it now it's surprised us of how it's just our employees have latched on and we're seeing it on job briefings now without real formal training like we've just done awareness level training and we're finding job briefings now where our employees will just draw a box and say this is what's sticking on my job site and this is what i'm doing about it and that's really what we're trying to do. When we walk, walk to a job, we're asking them, we want them to ask three questions. What's sticky? What am I doing about it? And is that enough? And if we can drive that conversation every day, every task, multiple times a day, we're going to get somewhere. Well, I think you are. I, the most amazing thing is I was in Australia and New Zealand just last month, and they're using sticky over there. And they got it from me. I mean, it's from you guys. And, and it doesn't require a lot of... Um, training i mean it's it's just it's it's really a brilliant way to identify the critical work that's identifiable and to ask those follow-up questions i mean i think this is kind of a game changer for the industry yeah i agree we didn't know it at the time you know you go back two years and i was a big sif uh person you know sif p sif a's a sifs p sifs whatever they're called man i was on that bandwagon and in theory, I'm still on the bandwagon, but I would go out to the employees, even our middle management. I'd talk about SIF and was like, man, did you go to a conference last week? Or what is this? You know, it's like, we got to quit talking safety speak. We got to, and it's not dumbing down. These employees are incredibly intelligent, but it's using terminology that they get and that they understand and that they can apply. They can apply sticky. If you go ask them to apply SIF, which in reality are pretty close to the same thing, they're not going to do anything with SIF, but they get sticky. Well, so I agree. See, I even think I think sticky is more elegant in that it, it really ha- it causes you to identify really what will kill you, right, as opposed to potential SIF. Like anything, any accident will kill a person if the, if the controls fail. So this whole idea of, well, that's, that potentially could have been a fatality, well, everything could have potentially been a fatality. And in retrospect, 
I'm not sure that has value in in pre-start. I just think it's brilliant to say, okay, what will kill you, right? That's the sticky question. But the question that makes its money is what are we going to do about it, and then is that enough? Because you're getting to that sufficiency question, and that sufficiency question, that's really where the creativity happens. I think you'll change the industry. I don't think you meant to. Um, I don't think it was your guys' plan to sit in a conference room and invent sticky, but you did. And I think... I think it'll have legs forever. I think it'll change fatality prevention, which means it'll change fatalities. And if that, I mean, go for it. Steal it like crazy. Every company should steal it. It's, yeah. it's worth stealing. It's something you guys can be really proud of, I think. That's good. So what's next? What, what, do you, what are you thinking? I mean, what's in your brain? Man, there's a lot. It, it's really focusing on implementation and getting it right. You know, before you've seen the implementation go where we send out a program with uh, my air quotes, a program via email and say, go implement that. This It doesn't work that way with the capacity model. We have to get in front of employees, in front of middle management, in front of our senior management, make sure they understand the human performance concepts and they understand where we're going. And that's going to be our focus for the next you know, several months, if not years, of getting that buy-in and then slowly coming behind that with implementation. But getting sticky out there now, because sticky can go without everything else, but it's really focusing on human performance elements, understanding why they're there, and just implementation, solid implementation. What are you going to measure? Because the challenge you have now is, is every time something doesn't happen, there's nothing to measure. And so this, this push on telling success stories is going to become important. What are you going to look at? What are you validating? What are you measuring? Well, it, lagging stuff, of course, we're me- uh, measuring sticky actuals, right? Which is, you know, it sounds kind of old school, but, yeah, it was a big step for us to define what we say an actual sticky event is and start reporting that up. That's what our board of directors is getting now is sticky actuals. That's what I'm telling our CEO about, sticky actuals. So we're going to move into sticky successes. That's when we had an operational failure but a safety success. So something broke in operations and it went bad for them. But yet we were had controls in place and we protected people, right? And then we're going to start measuring sticky potentials. And that's where we either had an event or maybe didn't have an event, but there was no controls in place. And it was just for the grace of God or for us being lucky that that event didn't hurt somebody. How will you collect that data? Field observations, uh, talking to our employees, uh, getting away from the discipline or the accountability. It's, hey, we got to learn from these things, so let's talk about them. Can you get can you get your guys to go out and validate those absolute controls? I mean, that seems to be the secret weapon. I'd be curious to see how are you thinking about doing that? Yeah, so we're still we're still defining exactly what our absolute controls were going to be. We have a couple drafts underway right now and we're looking at that. And then it'll be going out and measuring, you know, compliance or having capacity on there with those controls. Uh, you know, that's probably four or six months down the road where we'll start measuring that. And you'll ebb and flow, so things will happen. How are you handling the things that happen? It's a setback. One, from when you know you have a significant event, it takes manpower out, so it slows your progress in implementing the program. But it's really, after that event happens, it's taking the program and laying it over top of the event and saying, 
how could the capacity model have prevented this? If we implement this, and what we're getting is lessons learned already, well, it probably wouldn't have prevented it in its current state, but if you make this little tweak, it would have been better. So. And operational learning, eventually, where do you think that'll head? I mean, are you going to collect storage? Are you going to you going to have a learning center? Are you going to have web page? I mean, where will that take you? Yeah, you know, we were just talking today. We're going to have some sort of database, and it's going to be communication. But I got to be real careful that it doesn't become noise, right? Because we're a large company. We're going to be doing a lot of learning teams. How do we make sure those communications don't become noise? So we're going to look at focused communications and ensure that we're filtering the communications to the group that it makes sense to get to and not doing, you know, I, I hate all employee emails, right, because then it just gets too much. Well, and I'm going to make a prediction, and I could be wrong. We'll talk again. But I'm going to guess you're going to lose control of operational learning really quickly because as soon as operations picks it up for problem solving, so now we're not just solving safety problems, we're solving operational problems, we're solving goal conflicts, those kind of things. You're going to see this kind of, at least in my organization, it sort of took off on its own, which I think is the highest. I mean, that's a good compliment. I totally agree, and, and we split up in the afternoon sessions, so you didn't hear my comments around this. This actually worries me a little bit yeah. because not letting it go because I want others doing it because we can't manage all this at corporate, right? We need it, but we want facilitators trained because nine months ago, I could have told you I could run a learning team. Now that I learned what a learning team is, I can't run a learning team. I need training, and we have people that are trained. But if we just let anybody go start a learning team, it's going to be haphazard. It's, it might not go quite right, and it's going to get a bad name, and then we're going to struggle coming back to do the learning team. So my message to everybody today was slow down. If we have a place that we need to do a learning team, let us come in and assist. We're building a train-the-trainer facilitator training. Let us come to do facilita facilitator training, and then you guys can go do them. And get, have a standard report out so we know what's coming back and we can communicate. I think what's exciting about that is eventually have this whole giant group of trained facilitators in the field who also can serve as, you know, investigators and critique leaders and operational learning people. And that's a lot of eyes and ears out there engaged kind of in a mature way to make a difference. What's your what's your final advice? What would you tell everybody else that's about to make this journey? Because you guys are pretty moxie. There's a lot of moxie here in this room. And you jumped out on this. You had support, which I think makes it good. I also think you're in a position where you had to do something differently. What advice do you give to other people? I, I think I said the first piece is make sure your CEO is on board and make sure not only on board of supportive but verbally supportive, vocally supporting this, right? Get your core team on board. Divide up duties. One person can't do this. If you're really going to implement this, it takes a while. Uh, when I first started this, I said, ah, six months will be done. I'm saying two years now just to get the program built and ready for implementation. So go slow, be diligent, but start moving now. I guess if I was to offer any advice, start moving now. The way we've looked at safety over the years whether it's rules-based or behavioral-based, they were all good. And I, I said this morning, they played a critical role to get us to where we are today. But life-changing events are still happening. Start now. So what do you think? I told you. 
he's a super interesting guy. He's also a great guy. Um, if if you need advice, pick up the phone. I mean, he's he's definitely on a journey and willing to share his information as much as he possibly can. I, I'm just glad to get to know him. I mean, what a great thing. He's just a really good guy. You you totally dig it. And I'm really proud of what they're doing and, and the way they're doing it. They're moving the industry because they're such a big part of it, but they're moving the industry in a way where what they really do is manage these systems that have failure capacity. They have the ability to fail elegantly and safely, and that equates to, well, quite honestly, um, better world peace and love and harmony and all good things you can think of. That's a big part of it. So that is the podcast. I'll let you go because I'm a little long, but I didn't know what to cut. So there we go. Uh, enjoy. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Subscribe if you haven't. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to just have you on board. Until then, they'll learn something new every single day. I bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, be safe.